0: We the Power, a podcast from Patagonia.
1: Mark and I are just people, citizens, who had adversity come and instead of giving up and shrugging and putting our eyes down we got in the crucible and then said hey everybody let's get in here and the transformation is alchemy you turn from lead to gold when you get community together you have that transition takes place because the hive mind is smarter it's more agile and that's why it's power to for and by the people
0: hi i'm lucy siegel and this is we the power that voice you just heard, well those are the unmistakable, unshakable tones of Agamemnon Otero from Energy Garden. He's the London-based human dynamo behind many of the UK's community renewable projects. And we also really wanted to speak to Mark Pepper from Ambition Lawrence Weston about his project in Bristol in England. Now when it comes to the UK's energy situation, I would say we are in a right pickle. We don't have the highest dependency on Russian gas, but we do have a dependency. And we definitely have a cost of living crisis. So it's expected, some predictions say, that 70% of the UK population will be impacted by eye-watering electricity and gas bills from mainstream suppliers. And some energy companies have gone out of business. So this was brewing before the Ukraine crisis. I wanted to really know from Agamemnon and Mark, is this the moment? Will community energy finally get its place in the sun? So I started by asking Agamemnon whether his phone has been ringing off the hook.
1: Um, Yeah, it's an incredible transition. I think the last 12 years have been... um... A lot of me on the street knocking on everybody's door. And now, you know, there's at least six emails in the info at from every corporate you could imagine.
0: And what is attracting every corporate to this issue at this precise moment?
1: Energy is now at the forefront of everybody's minds. I think in that sense, they've seen the the big sort of Pac-Man sort of going out and and gobbling up all natural capital in the world.
0: For those of you not immersed in 80s early computer games, Pac-Man was a yellow circle with a face who gobbled up everything in its path.
1: And now we've got this, the war raging across Europe, but it's actually this old conversation around ownership of energy infrastructure, but also linked to the valuation of global currencies. And what ends up happening is that the community narrative around local people owning their own assets, their own infrastructure, and having a say on how that environment should be maintained is really coming home to roost. In a way, people coming together in communities to defend themselves have consistently always done that for the environment. And now, with the environmental and social at the forefront of our conversations, it's it's really become that people say, oh, what an amazing idea!" I'm saying we've been saying the same thing in the community energy sector for fifteen twenty years. Yeah,
0: do you have to try and like button that up because I told you so? Or yeah, I've been saying that for a while. It's like <laughs> you have to turn the other cheek quite a lot.
1: I'm not a big cheek turner,
0: really. <laughs> I,
1: mean, I mean, I mean, I I I won't I won't I'm not interested in sticking things in people's faces necessarily, but. I think it's a really important thing to bring up. You know, if it, the, the the environmental movement really suffered in the '70s and the '80s with the fact that we we didn't commodify, we didn't say like you know the the natural capital of a mangrove in um, Sri Lanka is worth 20, 29700 pounds due to what it does to the. You know, to the environmental, how much it helps with people coming around their flood defences, and it was only worth a thousand pounds for developing a house, and they went for the thousand pounds because the environmental movement wasn't worried to value. That this was all in the in the late 80s, so and that's what I'm, I use as an example of why environmentalism was was struggling because the community itself wasn't wasn't having the conversation with the business community. And now we're ready to value things and say, you know, community development has a value, sense of purpose, sense of place, sense of well-being. They all have a value to the National Health Service, to the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and we need to put that front front and center, and there is that conversation to be had now. So we're in a different place. So saying it that way, phrasing it that way, saying we've made mistakes in the past, but we're willing to to have this conversation because you all know there's something that needs to change is the best way to go about it, as opposed to saying, I told you so.
0: So um, people will be very uh, scared, very frightened about their energy bills. What role does community energy play or can it play in addressing the energy crisis that we see in front of us, that we're experiencing?
1: So <clears throat> to date, it's had very little play on people's energy bills. I did the first community energy uh, project on social housing in the UK in 2011. And it was in Brixton on Elmore House. And our number one reason was to reduce energy bills, generate renewable energy, and address fuel poverty. And it took us seven years to get a trial by the government to be able to actually bring that energy into people's houses and to use the national grid. Because you could have always just put a direct wire <clears throat> and reduce people's energy bills. But that was very, that was prohibitively expensive. But now, since the last three, four years, community energy has moved to a different area where we can actually procure the energy through a community share offer where everybody comes together in a one vote, um, one member cooperative, they buy energy assets, and then they can receive that energy. And when that happens, that, that moment happened, we were then able to address both the infrastructure that goes up around us and how and where our money is spent so now you could buy energy garden energy from us patagonia for instance has their three their shops are all on energy garden uh, energy for the next three years so you know in that way it, we've we've it, been a huge transition so since since october last year and you can the any individuals could invest in energy garden and get there that return financial return they can get the energy from us they can they can get beer from us you know what i mean so it's like it's like an energy bank at energy garden and i think that's the real shift that's happening in community energy is people can now invest in their local infrastructure and then get a, a return in how they see fit in our case, in Energy Garden's case, produce, honey, beer.
0: But is it cheaper? Is it cheaper to buy energy from you? There
1: is the case in the community projects on some social housing blocks where you could absolutely have it 30% cheaper than the market rate. And there are projects where that is being delivered. It's really about what does the co-op want to see? Do they want to see reduce energy bills? Do they want to see more outcomes done? But you can do that through community energy. You can reduce the rate of energy bills for people.
0: This is We the Power from Patagonia. In the midst of our global energy crisis, we're all feeling the squeeze, but the problem of high energy costs is not new, especially for those whose finances are precarious. The poor pay more, as Agamemnon noticed in Brixton in South London.
1: In 2010-11, you had these companies coming in with their prepay top-up cards. And so it was very normal for someone to run down the shops and put a fiver onto your prepay card and yet that what those cards were were a loaded mechanism a gun to the sort of disenfranchised you were carrying the debt for whatever weight was on that on that bill already and then you were paying probably a 20 30% surcharge to have the ability to be able to pay for your your energy on a regular basis when you had the money, so it worked out that those some people were paying forty to sixty percent more, uh, and yet they were the people who were below the poverty line. So they were on less than twelve thousand pounds a year, and they were paying, let's say, thirteen hundred pounds for a, a dual fuel energy bill for your gas and electricity, and they were paying about eighteen to nineteen hundred pounds. And as, the, and as the price of things have gone up, that, that went in line with it. And we actually found that giving them a payout, uh, an individual check for the, for the residents was, was a, a way in which they... Because we were dealing with more than one problem. People in fuel poverty are not usually just suffering from fuel poverty. There's like bad air quality, they're in debt. So there's all these multiple aggressors hitting them from different angles. So that's how we address those issues.
0: I'm fascinated to know a bit more detail of exactly what Agamemnon did. For example, how did they persuade people to
1: come on board? So we went into the local community, we knocked on doors, at least every door at least four times to get the communication from the community to say, look, we're building an energy cooperative, do you want to be a part of it? We ran a youth training program, we wrote a schools program, we had free solar panel making workshops we had uh, energy advice workshop, we had debt management workshops. And then people came together who lived on the estate, uh, and they invested. Some invested 75 pounds, some invested 600 pounds, or 5,000 pounds. But most of the people invested more than the minimum threshold, which was 50 pounds. And they amassed, I think it was about 52,000 pounds, we put 30 Thirty odd, thirty eight kilowatts of solar onto the roof of a of a social housing block, uh, which was two hundred and thirty panels, filled the whole roof. And then we went down and we did all the lifts and lighting in that building. And then years as we kept trying to to upgrade that system and get individuals a reduction in energy bill, we then did a supply trial where we were able to then use um, the two largest supply companies to give the individual people the energy in the building so that when the sun was shining, they would then get that energy at a reduced rate.
0: That's how it happened. So at some point, you've set your sights on Bristol and you've thought, here's some people with some... uh, Similar vibes, similar energy. What was it about Bristol that you thought, okay, this could work here?
1: Uh, actually, it was a mutual thing. I was I was um, contacted by the council in 2014 around the work that we were doing in Brixton. Bristol always does everything better than london so i tried so hard and long with lambeth council and and hackney council and stuff to get community energy going and um it was really difficult and bristol came and said you know we think we should do it with the council we should do it we should do it that way and i said you know that would be great because we've been trying for years at lambeth and and hackney and and croydon and you know to have a full program run by the council that have a devolved um group from right from the outset would be amazing and they just did it they've, they've won best sustainable city of europe and they've gotten tons of different opportunities where they've really taken it and they've taken all of the learning from around the, the rest of the country and, and the world and then tried to implement it so it's been a really i've i've always thought uh it's been a, a exciting place to to try all things and and deliver them
0: bristol does everything better That might be hotly contested by other cities in the UK, but when it comes to being green, Bristol was the first British city to be named European Green Capital and was recently named the most sustainable city in the UK. Now Mark Pepper is one of the founding members of Lawrence Western Ambition and he is heading up an incredibly ambitious community energy project. They've just directed what will be the tallest wind turbine in England, which will soon be producing enough energy to power 3,500 homes. Mark, tell us, is Bristol better?
2: Thank you for the kind words about Bristol. Uh, Agamemnon. depends in what part of Bristol you live, whether or not you share that same experience and that same benefit. But I've got to say the local authority have been extremely supportive of of what we're trying to do here in Lawrence Weston. So if I give you a little bit of history about who we are and what we are and what we're about, we're an extremely small community group um, from a residential area in the north of Bristol called Lawrence Weston. There's around about 7,200 residents sharing around about 3,000, poor quality homes basically. You touched on the wind turbine. I mean, the t- wind turbine is, is one project of many that we're involved with. We came about way back in 2012 with the ambition to try and change our lot. We felt we'd been let down by stakeholders and other decision makers in the past and that we were we were the forgotten estate in Bristol, basically. So we're pushing and striving forward to try and change life in Lawrence Weston for the local community. So uh, taking more of a hyper-local approach and some of the fantastic things that, you know, Agamemnon's um, been doing for the last ten years, twelve years. Um, so our main aim is not just around fuel poverty, because you know we've lived with fuel poverty for quite some time, 20, 30 years perhaps. But poverty, you know, in general, um, and the social injustice that we feel we're faced with. To be able to change our lot, we needed to generate some income, basically. And that, unfortunately, is, blunt as it may seem and as crude and as rude as it may seem, is the reason why we got behind delivering a wind turbine. It wasn't, you know, because we were strongly supportive of community energy at that time. We knew nothing about community energy and the benefits it could bring. Um, we were just in a bad position where we needed to generate an income to try and, you know, improve the lot for our residents. Climate wasn't likely on the agenda. of Residents, they have more what they feel they have more pressing issues, and they still have like keeping a roof uh, above their heads, putting food on the table, feeding their kids. So one of the negative attitudes coming from government at the time was their false perception, in our opinion, that the public weren't supportive of onshore wind turbines. So, so many years ago, I can't remember how many, they made it increasingly difficult for onshore wind turbines to be realised. But in a perverse way, that helped us because the only way you could see an onshore wind turbine was to show really good support from the local community that they wanted to see one. So basically, we're about to build. What we believe is the biggest wind turbine in England, owned by the local residents of Lawrence Weston.
0: I am going to give you the briefest of historical notes here. In 2015, the then Prime Minister, David Cameron, who'd previously been seen with huskies at the Arctic, said that he was cutting the green crap. Apparently, this meant onshore wind turbines. Now, they had been an issue with so-called NIMBYs, which is not in my backyarders, who are visually offended by wind turbines for many years. They were effectively banned in what was politely called a moratorium. So you could probably have one, but it would take you years of fighting uh, planning regulations. So we are really playing a game of catch up here. Mark, just how did you do it? (laughs) Just tell us, how did you do it? What did you say to people? And what did they say to you what was the, what was the conversation like that
2: conversation started around about six years ago to be honest we we realized that there was a climate crisis even though our residents or a lot of our residents didn't think there was so we we embarked on that conversation with them where we did several of the things that your last speaker spoke about like um we delivered with, uh, solar farm panel workshops for families we did a hell of a lot we had a scale extra set that, that ran off power generated by riding a bicycle. Um so just things to engage the residents because they weren't they weren't switched on at all around the climate and renewable energies and the benefits that it could bring.
0: But what was the sort of number one reservation or number one thing people said initially?
2: as soon as we started mentioning climate they they sort of switched off they didn't feel as though climate had anything to do with them their attitude was you know it's not them that are flying halfway across the Atlantic it's not them driving their Chelsea tractors or um, got their log burners supporting their central heating systems and like I say they felt as though they had more p- pressing issues to deal with so we had to really bring it down to a local level and explain to them uh, that some of their priorities is exactly that it is addressing climate I'll put it very Plainly, if you like and bluntly, we had a lot of residents who were keen to improve the local area, but didn't associate that with climate. So we had a lot of people who wanted to just beautify the area by putting plants in. So by us supporting them to meet their priority of making the area look better by putting plants in, we got their captive engagement, if you like, or captive audience. And then we said, yeah, we're here to support you with your priorities, but did you know, if you change this plant for that plant, did this for that, you're also affecting the biodiversity. So we're always meeting their the residents' priorities first and foremost, but also bringing in those co-benefits that climate bring in. And then obviously, no two ways about it, when we started talking around the wind turbine, It was that economic benefit that attracted them more than anything, to be honest, for them to generate an income to themselves. Also, you know, the fact that I think some of them realize that they didn't need to be passive consumers of of power and that they could, you know, be an active owner of some of the um, infrastructure. And that that, I think that sent out a massive statement for, for a community that had been disempowered. Now it seems as though, you know, they'll be able to see their, their own wind turbine that Johnny and Susie down the road owned or own a, a share of.
0: When is the turbine going up and will you be able to see it from where you live?
2: Um, I think we will be able to see it from where we live. It's just down the road a little bit. We think they look beautiful. We've got quite a few wind turbines in the local areas. as it is. Um, so it's a lot better than what we were used to. And that's big chimney stacks. Bellowing out pollution on the industrial estate is going to be. We'll see the blades turn in March 2023.
0: And how much power will it generate? And how many Ooh. households are connected to it?
2: I'm no renewable expert. Um, I'm a development manager for the Development Trust, and we've got a project team to, that looks after the wind turbine with the knowledge needed. And I think it's five kilowatt, five megawatt, I'm not too sure which, but it's apparently enough energy being produced to power 3,500 ohms. And it just so happens that in Lawrence Weston, we've got 3,500 ohms. Unfortunately, we're not gonna have a direct line into those homes simply because of the regulations. Apparently we were unable to do that. Um, so we've got to sign a PPA agreement with, with an off-taker and then just use the profits of that that generate to try and address the fuel poverty in a, in a, a less of a direct way, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, so your energy, so, you, so you're selling your power back to the grid essentially, yeah. do you know what sort of measures that will go into, is it like insulation, is it, what, what sort of things will that pay for?
2: We're not too sure at the moment, our organisation is resident driven and led, so we always take our direction from the residents. But some of the things we're delivering, obviously, is the Climate Action Plan. We've got quite a comprehensive Climate Action Plan, uh, which has been designed and written by the residents. But a lot of that funding will go into delivering what we've delivered in the past through other funding, and that's relief grants. So we give grants to families that are in dire straits around their energy. We then get our other group called the Men in Sheds, who are old um, tradespeople who then come in and do simple retrofit type stuff. Um, So just draft exclusion and stuff like that. So it's quite organic quite localised
0: if that makes sense so aga i I want to come back to you on a on a few things firstly when i hear all this when i hear mark speak and hear what he's achieved and what his community's achieved it feels to me like community energy has been jettisoned in the uk in terms of policy and support how it it was decided early on that it wouldn't become a priority is that your understanding do you would you agree with that
1: Uh, yes. I would say like they're talking about it as a a vehicle. The government is talking about community energy as a vehicle, but the problem is they don't want to give individuals ownership of their own. Uh, they want to sort of tell them that they can allow corporates to then give them a product.
0: Okay. And that, and that's That's the problem. The way I'm thinking about it, so community energy is this car, um, but they're still making the corporates the driver. We're still, in that, like, we can be a passenger, maybe. We can put our shopping in the boot. But we're still, they don't want to let us actually actually drive the car at the moment. Right.
1: Okay. Right. But, yeah, I like but, you're,
0: but you're talking about bypassing government yes. completely. Yes. So therefore, does it matter that the Treasury still deems onshore wind and solar as poor value for money.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really disappointing. But if you talk to any of, the, uh, any of the investors in energy infrastructure, you'll know that that is a complete farce. The, the, it is incredible investment. And it's what, what they're basically trying to do. You know, when you look at energy infrastructure in the UK... It was, when I started doing community energy, it was less than 1% of our energy mix was renewable. Now we're hitting over 31%, right? How much of that is community owned? How much of that is even owned by people in the UK? Less than 1%. Who keeps selling off our infrastructure, right? That's the question we should be asking. We as a country should be owning our infrastructure. Not selling it off all the time. We have a, an age-old conversation about infrastructure, people's infrastructure, being given away. You use you use tax money to develop that infrastructure, and then you sell it off. How can one person in China, Lin Kashi, own UK power networks, which is the largest district network operator in all of the UK, which is all from Oxford down to the water, all of London? Guess who we sold it to two weeks ago? A hedge fund. Our district network, which was built with taxpayers' money, has been sold to a hedge fund because it's such a bad investment? No, because it was a great investment.
0: Do you think people are now ready to hear a different narrative around community energy? And what is a succinct way of explaining what community energy can do for them?
1: Power to, for, and by the people. Change isn't going to come to you, you have to make it happen. And I think everybody knows now they are the only ones who are supporting their interests. Everybody else is out there to do their thing, even in small communities, like Mark is highlighting. You know, this community had to step forward and do it for itself. And I think that's where we've got to is actually when there's... I've told you and I've taken... Lucy, I've taken you to different estates. The beauty of this is that The narrative could be, oh, well, if every little estate or every little community starts to become independent in their own way, that that would somehow be negative because it would be, you know, not all people coming together. But as you saw, like, it's putting food on the table. It's education for their community. It's a roof over their heads. You know, it's, it's the fundamental building blocks of community. But it's also that when you speak about it and you share those things and you try to build a revenue stream for those things, that you say that there was a direct impact on climate change by you choosing to support and empower your own community. And when all these communities then begin to come together and say, we're empowering us, we talk to each other. And then that's a huge block. You know, what is it? The businesses, small businesses make up 97% of the businesses. And yet, we, all we talk about is the big businesses that fly their chief execs up to the moon. We don't talk about the individuals that keep everybody right here on the planet because they can make the change here and now. And when they're ready. And we're all ready. We just need to know that we have a vehicle for doing that. And community energy delivers it.
0: Mark, what should people do if they need to take the first step? So they're listening to this, they kind of want to act. What What is the the touch point? What's the first thing they could do?
2: I think to raise their own aspirations, basically. You've got a small area like ours, and got two it needs to rub together yet we're pulling off some massive things and we've done that by going out and seeking the support that is out there uh there is support from um community energy groups all over the place there people were falling over themselves to help us with with what we were trying to achieve and by working together we're, you know we're going to achieve some fantastic things not only we've we got wind turbine, mean, we've also got a 50 percent share in a solar farm in the local area you know it, it just it's going on and on and on it's it's, it's just incredible but just because you're a small, impoverished little community in England doesn't mean to say that you can't achieve some fantastic things. If you come together, uh, you know, seek out that support, accept that support and um, deliver it for yourselves, basically.
0: And did you, did you do a poster? Did, was it word of mouth? So what, ha- what happened next?
2: To be honest, we door knocked every, a group of us, about eight of us, door knocked every, um, resident in the local area with a survey and asked them exactly what they thought was what was good about living in Lawrence West and what was not so, not so good and what changes they would like to see. Then we invited them into the local community center and it's all transpired from there. Basically, we got different projects, different groups running different fantastic things and schemes. Um, but yeah, you're right. It does take a lot of work. But it is possible, um, and like I say, the support and the funding, if you're fortunate enough to live in Bristol with a very supportive local authority, the funding is there to help you to do that.
0: It is quite amazing. It's so impressive, it really is. Um, Agamemnon, what, where do you think people should start? Maybe they don't live in Bristol, maybe they don't have that access to funding, and maybe they feel that they've they felt that the landscape is quite hostile to community energy.
1: I would start with forgiveness. Everybody seems to be worried that they've already messed up too much and they can't start. I think the, the, then the, the first physical action is that if you look at when you're, wherever you are, just how many times, uh, you interact with the world outside you, you know, whether it's you flipping on the switch, um, or you're turning on the water or you're, uh, uh, you know, going out and throwing your w- garbage, your waste, into the into the bin, you know any type of movement. There's a direct implication for the wider community. So, like um, when you're using that energy, where's your energy come from? When you're turning on your water, where's your water come from? Where you're taking waste, where's it? Where's the landfill go? And if that doesn't get you angry, if that doesn't get you riled up and want to do something, then you've got to check in with your feelings because there's something because the system is broken. And so this is the beauty of today and being able to to hear our our stories. I mean. Mark and I are, are just people, citizens, who had adversity come and instead of giving up and shrugging and putting our eyes down, we got in the crucible and then said, hey, everybody, let's get in here. And the transformation is alchemy. You turn from lead to gold because the, when you get community together, you have that transition takes place because the hive mind is smarter. It's more, it's more agile and it can deliver, you know, 10, 100, 1,000 times the outcome that the financial resources put to, the, to do those things could have done. Every counselor knows that when they go into they've got a door knock, but do they ever deliver the same amount of things? No, because we're not going anywhere. We're here to stay and this is our community and that's where we are. And the, the, These co-ops themselves are built to last. The things, the outcomes that they're supposed to share and deliver in are real because they are of what the people want. And that's why it's power to, for, and by the people.
0: That's it. Power to, for and by the people. We the power. I love that. You've been listening to me, Lucy Siegel, and my guests Agamemnon Otero from Energy Gardens and Mark Pepper from Lawrence Western Ambition. And if you've been inspired and how could you fail to be inspired by what you heard and want to get involved, get inside the crucible and create some of your own alchemy. Visit the website patagonia.com forward slash we the power. We're all going to be speaking like Agamemnon for, for the rest of the week. And that's no bad thing. Um, on the website, you will also find the rest of the episodes of this series of We the Power from across Europe. And in the next episode, we're going to be talking to Fabienne Mares and Lionel Astruc about how the future of energy is female and could be a design for life in the 21st century. Because in the next episode, we are heading to France. See you then. You won't want to miss it. And please don't forget to rate and review.
1: We the Power.
0: We the Power, a podcast from Patagonia.